In today's episode of the Greatest Games Podcast, we bring you New York Times bestselling author Ian O'Connor, the author of the brand new book, The Rise and Reign of Mike Krzyzewski. What an incredible episode. Ian sits down with Chris in this episode. Unfortunately, I was not able to make it. I hate that I missed it, but boy, oh boy, what a great listen this was. Ian, thank you so much for sitting down with Chris. Please grab a copy of this book and copies of Ian's other books. He is an incredibly talented and skilled author. But before we get to today's episode, please check out teachhoops.com slash 816 basketball for incredible coaching content from the great Steve Collins. Again, teachhoops.com slash 816 basketball and Billy Kegler with the Competitive Mindset Podcast. He's absolutely rolling. This podcast has incredible guests. The Competitive Mindset Podcast with Billy Kegler. Check him out on social media at Competitive Pod. And let's go ahead and get to today's episode of the Greatest Games Podcast. Welcome to the Greatest Games Podcast brought to you by 816 Basketball. I'm one of your hosts, Chris de Blasio, not joined by my co-host Brian Rosefield tonight as he's on assignment. Uh, tonight we have a very special guest. We have New York Post sports columnist and multiple time award winning author, I believe, multiple time New York Times bestselling author Ian O'Connor, whose new book, Coach K The Rise and Reign of Mike Shashevsky. And we're going to talk about that book tonight. Welcome, Mr. O'Connor. How are you, Chris? Thanks for having me. I'm doing great. Um, let's get right into it. Obviously, this book is uh, sweeping the nation. I know many people who are currently reading it. Uh, I got a chance to read a bunch of it online over the last couple of days. Uh, you, in the introduction, we'll get right into it. You tell that story of, uh, I can't think of his name. I had it written down. McGinnis. Joe McGinnis. Yeah. McGinnis from uh, up in Rockland County. And the, kind of that was your impetus into wanting to find out what made Mike Krzyzewski tick. How did you find out about that story? Is that where the genesis of the book began? Actually, the genesis of the book was uh, 30 years ago, believe it or not, at the Philadelphia Spectrum. Christian Leitner made the greatest shot in the history of college basketball to beat Kentucky, and I was there courtside. So we could talk about that a little later. But Joe McGinnis comes from a big Irish Catholic family about uh, 15 minutes away from mine. And so uh, Jim McLaughlin, who's a guy who lives in Pan, I know Mr. McLaughlin coached against his sons. Yeah, that's right. So, you know, his sons were really good players. One went to uh, Bryant, Shane, and uh, and so he had uh, – and then uh, his other son played uh, D2 ball. And – but, uh, yeah, in high school, they were lights out, both of them, and and Troy and Shane. But the uh, – so Jim uh, basically introduced me to the story of Joe, of Joe McGinnis, and Joe was his uh, – Coach K's last point guard at West Point before going to Duke. And they had stayed fairly close over the years. And I wanted to tell a story at the beginning of the book, Chris, that showed some humanity in Coach K and, and just how important he was to his players over the long haul. And Joe McGinnis, uh, unfortunately, was diagnosed with cancer some years ago. And in the final days, weeks and months of his life, Coach K was there for him, fighting with him and for him, trying to get him to the best doctors in New York, trying to get consultation with the uh, Duke Medical Center which of course is world renowned and, and just texting him, staying in touch with him, giving him pep talks to keep fighting the cancer. And I think uh, 
in, in a very probably the most profound scene in the book. And one reason why I opened with it was Joe McGinnis on his deathbed and just wanting Coach K to know that he didn't quit as much as Coach K told him, keep fighting it, keep fighting it. He needed him to know before he died that he didn't quit. So he, he the cancer had robbed him of his ability to speak. So his brother was next to his deathbed and had Coach K on the phone and was able to communicate that message to him for Joe. And obviously, Coach K said, I, I listen, you didn't have to tell me that. I know you didn't quit. But I, I thought it was telling that here's a guy who was in his mid-50s, really didn't have a direct connection anymore with Coach K, who, who only played two years for him at Army. They didn't have a whole lot of success together in terms of wins and losses. And one of his dying wishes was to make sure his coach knew that he did not give up. So, and, and I use that as a, a launching point into a, a life story of a great leader and someone who motivated and inspired young men to do things they probably didn't believe they could do. And I thought that actually was a story, even though it was far more profound than anything you'd find on a basketball court or in a gymnasium that spoke to how this man won nearly 1200 games and is probably the greatest college basketball coach of all time. So so it's a long way of saying it, it was a story that hit close to home for me, uh, literally and figuratively. And I thought said a lot about Mike Krzyzewski. Yeah, absolutely. I love the in the story you talk about how he connected with generations multiple generations of his family, the grandmother who he, he had a relationship with. Right. Um, and, and his sons too, Connor and yeah. Pat, became coaches and uh, just uh, was right. A rock for that family really through, through generations. And, and uh, Joe McGinnis's grandmother would call coach K occasionally send him baked. I have it in the book. I think baked cookies, if I remember correctly. So, yeah. So he, he touched a lot of people in a lot of different ways. So now when you go to embark on this project, where do you start? I want to write a book someday. I have no idea where to even start. And then in the acknowledgments, you go through a, a litany of sports writers and, and people that you reached out to and talked to, not just the people that you interviewed, but um, like I said, a litany of sports writers and, you know, some great ones, J.A. Adande and Jack McCallum and, and those guys. And where do you start with this project? How do you know where you want to begin? It's a good question, uh, Chris. It's uh, really what you do is you end up, interviewing as many people as possible. And by the way, my previous biography was on Belichick and not only did he not cooperate, but he openly and relentlessly lobbied people to not talk to me. He was, he was trying to basically shut the project down. So in some ways he made me better by putting all those hurdles in front of me. Coach K wants to, I believe, write his own book in retirement, which is fine. And he certainly like Belichick didn't know me a damn thing, but he didn't ask anybody not to talk to me. And he said he wouldn't. And I believe he lived up to that promise. So the challenge there was not quite as forbidding as the, the Belichick challenge. But you, you interview hundreds of people and then you look at what you have. At least this is the way I do it. I think authors all have different ways of going about it. And I usually go chronologically in a life. And I know a lot of authors don't like to do that. But to be honest with you, I don't have when I'm writing about a life, I want to start in the present or the near present, which is what I did with Joe McGinnis. And, and then I basically start from his childhood in Chicago, which I think is a pretty profound story, and, and weave the, the narrative that way chronologically. And, and uh, so I, I don't know. I, I don't know. Maybe uh, I'm missing the boat on that, but I don't see a better way of doing it. I think people and readers want clarity 
And I think doing it that way provides it. But I have to say, I, I've read some biographies, some great ones that that don't do it that way. I think every author has his or her own approach and style, but that happens to be mine. Yeah. And uh, let's go back to Chicago. That opening chapter, you, you tell the story of his childhood. It's sort of, you know, I would say the, the quintessential, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Immigrant tale, his family that came over here from Poland and, and uh, settled in Chicago, which so many of the Eastern Bloc Europeans, I mean, you think of the great novel, um, now I can't think of it, Upton Sinclair, um, The Jungle, that's yeah. big, big, was the meatpacking uh, district in Chicago with the, the Eastern European immigrants. And what I was really fascinated with was you see the leadership of Coach K develop at a young age. You talk about when he went to start to he wanted to start a CYO team. They didn't have a team. So he basically started his own league and then he kind of started his own basketball and stickball league among the neighborhood. Talk about that, like investigating that and learning about that. Those leadership qualities were seen at 10 years old. Right. I think I have in the book his first program that he ever built. He was 12 years old <laughs> at St. Helen. They didn't want to have a basketball team for whatever reason. And he said, all right, I'm going to start my own travel team. And they went around and they really did this in, in a number of different sports and challenged other neighborhoods and, that became their thing. It was in some ways it was a charmed childhood of just sports day and night. And he belonged to a group called the Columbos, calling it a gang. Well, it was a gang in name only. The real gangs left them alone because they thought they were completely harmless. It was a sports gang is what it was. And uh, so he uh, yeah, he was he was the leader of, of, of his group of, of that Polish American neighborhood of the, the, the grandchildren of immigrants, really. And I think you see it some ways in the life experience of his parents, blue collar, didn't graduate from high school, labored for wealthy people their entire adult lives. His mother was a cleaning lady. She had two dresses to her name. They hung in her closet, perfectly pressed. Father was an elevator operator, later a small tavern owner, didn't have a lot of success with that. And I think he saw in his parents people who just fought for everything they had. His father changed his name from Krzyzewski to Cross to avoid uh, discrimination of Polish-American immigrants and their children. And so he witnessed that. And I think that lit a competitive fire within. It really did. He learned at an early age that you, you have to fight to make your way in this world and really in this country. And people will try to take things away from you. Don't let them fight for what you have and what you deserve and what you earn. And really, that's how he built that program. His uh, he's got some more Bobby Knight in him than people realize And behind closed doors and practices. He, he can get in your face and say some really tough and degrading things. And, and remember, at West Point, as a plebe, as a freshman, and he was absolutely verbally berated left and right by upperclassmen, just like every other plebe. And so he was raised in that environment and, and that approach of 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 doing that to people. And so a lot of what you see, nearly 1,200 victories, five national championships, 12 final fours, I think is defined by that competitive rage that was shaped by his childhood, by discrimination and by what he endured at West Point. Uh, yeah, that you talk about that, that. He has a lot more Bobby Knight in him than, than people realize. I, I happen to be uh, very good friends with Colonel Siegel's son who I know you interviewed and, and used Absolutely. in the book. Um, and uh, I don't know if you know this, that Colonel Siegel's son-in-law is Hubert Davis. 
Yeah, he did say that. He did tell me that when I interviewed him. Yeah, interesting. So I've known Bobby for about 20 years, and so I've gotten tremendous insight into Shashevsky and the family because they've known, you know, obviously his dad and, and Shashevsky have been friends for, you know, 50 years. But, uh, yeah, that competitive fire exists that not a lot of people uh, – well, maybe he's cultivated it that way. He's done a better job, I think, publicly cultivating that persona than Bobby Knight. Yeah, and I think Knight – obviously crossed the line of acceptable coach player conduct. Mike would go up to the line, but he wouldn't cross it. And so it, it, it's an interesting comparison because he does have some rage inside of him. And certainly Knight did to the nth degree, but Mike would never get physical with a player. At least my reporting showed that he, he didn't and, and Knight did. And so I have to say, I sat behind uh, Coach K in the Duke bench for the first time in New Jersey at the Meadowlands in 1999. Duke was playing a Sweet 16 game against Steve Alford's Southwest Missouri State team. And it was nonstop, relentless profanity for two hours and 15 minutes directed at the refs, at, at his players, at his assistants. He killed Quinn Snyder, his assistant coach in that game, more than once. And I was just blown away by it. Now, I wasn't morally offended because I cursed myself, maybe not to that degree. But this is extreme profanity uh, without getting into the details. And I remember thinking to myself, there are a lot of grandmothers in America who love this guy. If they ever sat behind his bench, they'd be absolutely mortified. <laughs> and so that was my introduction up close and personal to Shashevsky's coaching style. So this is not a guy. This is not a church social in practice at Duke. It's never been that way for 42 years. It certainly wasn't that way when he was the head coach at army either. And that's the way he led. That's the way he was led. And it worked. Listen, some players did transfer. They didn't love that, that style, but over time he made them better players, the blue devils. And he made a lot of them better people too, tougher people. And you see the results in terms of his record and the national titles. Yeah. And, and the, uh, the respect his former players had what was it 92 former players were there the other night at the final game. You know, right. Yeah. They don't do that for no reason. Yeah. And uh, listen, more would have been there, but you had some guys like RJ Barrett was on the West coast with the Knicks and Bobby Hurley was busy coaching Arizona state. And you would have had a lot more than that, but some guys were busy in the NBA coaching, playing, what have you. Mm -hmm. So yeah, no doubt that listen, like all, great leaders at times those players were really angry at him and really didn't understand not all of them, but I think a lot of them, the way he was coaching them and how tough he was on them. And they thought he was unfair and not understanding enough. And some of the things that he would say to them uh, they found uh, to be unfair, but it, it, when they look back on it, 15, 20, 30, 35 years later, they realized why he did what he did and that it made them tougher and made them better. So I think that respect and uh, gratitude really for what Coach K meant to them as not only basketball players, but as human beings, I think was pretty evident in that turnout, which would have been significantly higher if people weren't tied up with what they were doing in the NBA. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I was fascinated with I, when, when I saw that you wrote the book, I was fascinated to learn about the Olympic experience. And you chronicled that very well. And there was a line in there that, that was used by Jim Beheim, I believe. And he said the psychology of coaching, that no one got it better than, than Coach K, at least in the game of college basketball. I, I will admit I've not read the Belichick book, 
Are there any similarities there when it comes to the psychology of coaching? Because we know Belichick's a master of, you know, that same sort of grand view of what he's building in, in New England. Were there any similarities that you saw among those two guys doing books on them? I think the similarity, Chris, is in the preparation, which is off the charts, the attention to detail off the charts, practicing situational football slash basketball off the charts. And so they both had that. Now, Belichick used a lot of sarcasm. And I, I've, uh, to whether it was Tom Brady or anyone in his program, and in the NFL during the regular season, they, they allow the media to watch very little of practice. But in training camp, and I've been to some of his training camp practices, you get to see pretty much the whole thing. And the, the one thing from a distance I've always really liked about Belichick's coaching style was he wasn't a berater and he just didn't lead that way with, with emotion. He uh, would sometimes use sarcasm and in a whiny voice and it'd be almost humorous, that dry humor. He can cut you in half with it where Krzyzewski used emotion to motivate and inspire almost in a Vince Lombardi way. So he had like the best of Belichick in preparation and that, Lombardi or Newt Rockney type of emotion that he would combine with it. And, and so charging into the Duke locker room as, as the Mel Gibson character in Braveheart, William Wallace. And that's not something Bill Belichick's ever going to do, <laughs> but, but Krzyzewski did it more than once. And just the, I remember I have, I have a scene in the book where he's playing there. Duke's playing the Soviet national team in an exhibition. And the history of aggression against Poland, Mike in the locker room, he put on a, a pin on his jacket. And it was, uh, if I remember correctly, I have it in the book, the uh, Polish Eagle symbol that he had uh, pinned to his jacket. And he, he said he used profanity and it was like, we're, we're not bleep bleep losing to these bleep bleep Russians. And, and it was all about his homeland. And so that he he will he will use emotion a lot now he is dealing with younger athletes so maybe it's more appropriate and and more uh, it's a more effective tool as opposed to grown up professionals but that's something that separates him from Belichick okay yeah when i just when i read that line i thought of the Belichick connection but i obviously thought of Lombardi and the other person when i think of when i think psychology of coaching is Pat Riley you know, that same sort of he, he understands how to tap into those motivational areas. But let's get to it. You talked about it. It's listen, as many national championships as Mike Krzyzewski's won, as many games as he's won. There's one game everybody talks about the spectrum in Philadelphia, Duke, Kentucky, the Blue Blood programs going at it. You said you were at the game. Uh, who were you reporting for? Uh, just tell me about that experience. I mean, when, when I talk about greatest games, I can't imagine you've been to any greater game than that one. Well, uh, we should also uh, get to the 91 Final Four game against UNLV because that really started the, the Duke dynasty, mm -hmm. if you will. But 92. That's the Bobby Hurley diarrhea game, I believe. No, that was the uh, the previous year. They got destroyed by UNLV by 30 in the national championship game. Oh, that's right. You're right. I'm sorry. They, no, that's okay. They come back the following year in the uh, Final Four. And beat and them. the UNLV team, which had a winning streak over two seasons, was the best college basketball team I've ever seen. And unbeatable, really. But uh, fast forwarding to the Kentucky game in 92 in the Philly Spectrum, I was working for the New York Daily News. 
And I was sitting courtside and really where Leitner caught the ball from Grant Hill. Rick, uh, Rick Pitino, the head coach of Kentucky, really made a mistake not putting a man on Grant Hill to throw the three quarters of the uh, length of the court pass that he threw right on the money to Leitner near the foul <laughs> line. And Patino also told the two defenders behind Leitner, don't foul, don't foul, whatever you do. So they backed off and gave Leitner a free look. If you recall, Leitner, now you're too young to remember, but Leitner was perfect in that game. 10 for 10 from the floor, 10 for 10 from the line, one for one from three-point range. He had not missed a shot all night of any kind. So, of course, he made the shot. But when the ball was in the air, I felt like I was right behind his right shoulder. And, and Tim Layden, who was at Newsday at the time, now at NBC Sports, we, we both said the same thing afterward. When it left his hand from where we were sitting, you could tell it was going in. I mean, it was a perfect shot, and it went in. The perfect player wins the perfect game with a perfect shot. I remember looking across the floor, and Krzyzewski had a white towel, and he spiked it like he was spiking a football in the end zone, <laughs> which I thought was an odd reaction. And afterward, in the press conference, I asked him, outside of strategy with 2.1 seconds left, after Kentucky had just taken the lead in overtime, a classic game with a crazy bank shot by Sean Woods. What did you tell your team in the huddle? Because when the Blue Devils walked back to that huddle, they were thinking of vacation, golf, going to the beach. Hey, at least we won last year's national title, so this isn't that bad. That's what they were thinking. But he grabbed them in that huddle. He got their attention, and he convinced them we can pull this off. Even though it's full court, this wasn't the NBA where you get the ball across half court after a timeout in that situation. And he got them to believe. So that night was really the night where I became fascinated with the Duke program, with Mike Krzyzewski. And really, this book, in a sense, is 30 years in the making because of that well, night. Well, I wanted to thank you, first of all, for underestimating my, underestimating my age. I was 15 years old when that game happens. I know okay. exactly where I was when I watched it. I was at my cousin's house in Cliffside Park, New Jersey. Uh, so I, I remember everything about that game years later. Uh, I got to do an internship at the university of Kentucky with their basketball team. And Tubby Smith was the head coach and, uh, and everyone around the basketball program, you know, that was like, you didn't even bring up that game or the name Duke or the name Shashevsky. Like if someone said, what did you do last night? You didn't say, Oh, I was watching the Duke game on TV. You just, <laughs> it's like a word you do not mention. Uh, I love the fact that you were at that game. I wish I could get a, a picture of press row to see all the great sports writers talk about yourself and Tim Layden. I'm sure uh, hoops Weiss was there and Jim yep. O'Connell. The I think, I think Malcolm Moran might've been there for the New York times. Wayne coffee was my colleague at the daily news. I don't was Lupica there. Mike Lupica might've been there for Mike Lupica. Will bond was probably there from, from uh, the, the post and yeah, I think, yeah. I think Gene Wojciechowski was probably there. Where was he at the LA times at that time? Okay. My, yeah. So yeah, it was that kind of a game at a moment, <laughs> Patino, Patino versus Krzyzewski and Kentucky was just coming out of scandal, not Patino's. Mm, it was, uh, Sutton, cut, he, uh, right, Chris Mills, the money in Chris Mills envelope. Right. And Patino was brought in, uh, although it's hard to believe that now, given the, the things that Patino has <laughs> been involved with, but that he was brought in to clean up the mess, believe it or not, instead of making one. But it was it was a I would say and I've been doing this for 36 years. That's if it's not the best of it, I, the, Tiger winning in 2019 at the Masters. It's probably the greatest thing I've ever covered, in part because it was the last trip I ever took with my brother, who unfortunately months later died of a heart attack. In his in his 50s. So I didn't know it at the time, but I remember walking with my brother 
towards the end of that Masters, uh, we were right there on the 16th hole. We had a perfect front row look at Tiger making that birdie putt, which you knew then he was probably going to win. Mm-hmm. And my brother had never been to a major. And I said that to him. And I said, you, you've never been to a tournament like this. And you are witnessing the greatest Masters of all time. How great is that? So that will always be close to my heart because of the fact, unfortunately, that he passed. But Duke, Kentucky is right there. I might be second. It might be 1A. might be tied for first. (laughs) And I still have not seen a college or pro basketball game that was better to cover, better to appreciate. Mashburn was playing at such a high level for Kentucky was a bunch of kids who. The the unforgettables. Right. The unforgettables left over. Guys who weren't high recruits, they were farm kids and river kids and hill kids from Kentucky, mm. coal kids. And, and then there was a great player in Mashburn who was a top NBA draft pick with those kids. Uh, I say kids, they were mostly seniors, but yeah. And, and versus a, a Duke team that uh, really was a machine at that point with Grand Hill, Bobby Hurley and Christian Leitner and other good players at the same time. So it was just Thomas Hill, Brian Davis, and it was played at such a high level that game. It was unbelievable for the entire night and the spectrum. Great. Philly's a great sports town Mm -hmm. and the place was just alive. And so I guess I'm a little surprised I didn't write this book sooner, but I knew he was at the end of his career, coach K and I I wasn't, uh, hell bent on going back to back with iconic coaches. I wanted to do something different after Belichick, but it was too good to pass up. So I will not be doing a coach for my next book. Well, I was going to say that was going to be my quick last question was you really, you really tackle the, uh, the underdogs in your books. You've written on Bill Belichick, Mike (laughs) Krzyzewski, Arnold Palmer, Jack Nicholas, Derek Jeter. I mean, (laughs) can we, are we going to tackle another large subject or are we going to tackle Bobby Meacham? You know, like I think, (laughs) Yeah, I think I think I'll stick with the large subjects because it seems like people have a tendency to buy books on, on those <laughs> figures. And uh, so I don't know who I my wife is uh, ready to just absolutely kill me. And you do these books and you pour a lot of blood, sweat and tears into them over two to three years. And then it's hard to just go right back into it. And particularly since I have two full time jobs, effectively, when I'm doing a book and so I'll, I, you need time to recover. I fear that these books, each one of them takes two to three years off the end of your life. I hope not, <laughs> but you, you do have to, I find anyway, I don't know, John Feinstein, some of these people have written like 15, 20 books. I, I just don't understand how you do that. Uh, I'm, this is number five for me. And I feel like I've written 10. <laughs> so, <laughs> but I, I think I need to recover for four to six months and then maybe think about it. But yeah, it's uh you, you are exhausted at the end of this process. I'm sure. I'm sure. And fi- yeah, Feinstein is prolific with the amount of books he writes. It's like every time you turn around, guys like you know what, David Halberstam wrote a ton of books. So Sometimes Feinstein's had a day job for most of his run. I don't know if he, if he has lately, but yeah, that's when it gets really tough. I started a new job. At, I was at ESPN for ESPN.com for 11 years or close to 11 years. And then when I started the new uh, column at the Post, I still hadn't finished this book and the New York post likes to work you pretty hard, which is I'm, I'm all for if they, they can have you write 15 comms a week, they, they would. And so to try to finish this book while starting a new job, that was pretty demanding. And I have no problem with that. That, that was, that was tough. That really was. So the first uh, three, four months at the post were very challenging, but uh, hopefully we pulled through. All right. Great. Ian O'Connor. Thank you very much for being on the greatest games podcast. 
Uh, for Brian Rosefield, who's not here tonight, I'm Chris de Blasio saying thank you for joining us here on The Greatest Games. <laughs>